This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology where we talk about new advances of childhood cancer. Welcome to episode number 65, which is being recorded on April the 14th, 2017. I'm going to be your host filling in for Dr. Tim Cripe. This is Dr. Robin Dennis from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, which is affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here along with my wonderful co-host, Dr. Ryan Roberts. Good to see you, Robin. Welcome, How are you doing? Ryan. I'm good, thank you. And uh, today we're going to be Uh, talking to Dr. Brenda Weigel. Dr. Weigel is actually visiting us today from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where she is on faculty at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. Dr. Weigel received her Bachelor of Science in Applied Human Nutrition at the University of Guelph, Ontario. And then she received her Master's degree at the University of Toronto, Ontario, Nutritional Sciences. She went on to get her medical degree at McMaster University um, in Health Sciences in Hamilton, Ontario, and then did her residency in pediatrics at the University of Western Ontario in London, Ontario, and proceeded to complete her fellowship in pediatric hematology, oncology, and bone marrow transplantation at the University of Minnesota, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Currently, Dr. Weigel is uh, faculty professor and tenured in the Division of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology at the University of Minnesota Medical School in Twin Cities campus. She has several leadership um, appointments at the University of Minnesota, which include the Director of the Clinical Trials Office, the Director of the Division of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology, uh, the Associate Director of the Cancer Experimental Therapeutics Initiative at the Masonic Cancer Center, and she is also the co-director of the Socoma Program in Pediatric Oncology. In addition to her activities at University of Minnesota, she also is very involved in the Children's Oncology Group, where she is currently the Chair of Developmental Therapeutics there. Uh, Dr. Weigel has a very impressive CV. Um, She's got um, a a very um, wonderful list of of, uh, grant funding that she received over the years. Um, She has over 50 peer-reviewed first author um, and last author publications. She's on several different committees, and she's mentored several people who are actually doing very well in the pediatric oncology arena, one of which actually is my mentor, <laughs> Dr. Michael Burke. <laughs> so, um, so, so I think um, I'm really excited to, to hear your talk today, which is going to be... She's like your grandchild. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <I know. laughs> which is going to be uh, this afternoon talking about pediatric on- oncology and translating science in the clinic, a new era. So without any delay, we're going to hear from... Uh, Dr. Weigel. And I also would one thing want to mention is that if you have any questions after this podcast, if you are listening to it in long term from now, please email us at twipo, T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. We'd be happy to read your email and discuss it during a future episode. Welcome. Thank you. It is my pleasure to be here. What an introduduction. Holy smokes. <laughs> well, it's all, it's all in the paper. It's all in the oh, yeah. CV. It's oh, you earned it. Oh, yes. my goodness. And how wonderful. It, it actually, as someone said to me, the greatest honor someone can and bestow on you is to uh, have the success of people who have trained with you recognized. And Mike Burke's clearly one of those very successful people. So that's a real honor. 
So, Robin, thank you. No problem. I thank you because I wouldn't <laughs> have had such a wonderful mentor if it weren't for you. <laughs> well, I was, I was thinking maybe we could start by telling us a little bit about what it is about your job that you really love and enjoy and, and tell us what it is that, in your words, what is it that you do yeah. for the rest of humanity? Oh, my gosh. Well, well that's, that's a big, big one. one. That's a big one. So, you know, I think all of us in pediatric um, oncology who work with um, children with cancer get asked the question all the time, oh, my gosh, how can you do that? How can you work with children with cancer? And if someone had said to me, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when I was, you know, in college and, and going into medical school, you'll be a pediatric oncologist, I would have said, you're crazy. There's no way. I, I can't, cancer, no way. Mm-hmm. Children, no way. And as I was going through training, I gravitated both to the science because that was always something I did all the way through. And the ability to use medicine to cure people. And a lot of the medicine that I saw as I was going through, you could maintain or you could fix, sort of, but you actually couldn't cure. And as I was going through, the perfect marriage for me was pediatric oncology that involved every organ system in the body, some of the most complex medicine, some of the most complex care, complex relationships, everything I loved about intensive care medicine, but I had long-term relationships. I was able to, to be part of something in a, in a very special way and be part of people's lives in a way that you can't describe to people. And at the same time, it is one of the fastest moving fields scientifically where there is always something to learn every day. And the real beauty for me and how I ended up in an area of developing new therapies, which is really where I've spent the vast majority of my career and in sarcomas, is that I could be in clinic and see a situation that was hopeless and go back to the lab and say, okay, this may not make a difference for that patient, but maybe down the road we are going to figure out something that's going to help these people overall. So you're constantly marrying what you're seeing on a day-to-day basis in the clinic with trying to drive discoveries to make the future better. And for me, it was a perfect marriage. I can't think of another area of medicine that I could find as fulfilling and rewarding. And I also love the relationships with the families and the ability to be part of something so much bigger than anything I could ever do. And and being a small part of trying to shape the direction of, of, of the field. So it's an, been an evolution, but it is... Um, has been fantastic. It's a place where you have a unique opportunity to make a difference for an individual, yep. but then also for populations to come. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And even, and I, f- I find this in my day-to-day practice, if, I'm, if I am in a situation where I'm saying to families or trying to talk to them about a new therapy, that I don't know if it'll work. I'm consenting them to therapy. It's a new therapy. It may or may not benefit their child. I can very honestly say that it may help them, mm-hmm. but I don't know. 
but I certainly will learn something that could help someone in the future. And to be at that interface is is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I actually, on that point, find, and you probably find this too, is that, you know, when, when a lot of our patients' families get to those points in their time, it does give them a little bit of peace just knowing that, you know, mm -hmm. even if their child doesn't really make it, that, right. that, that information will be translated to actually maybe helping and other kids in the future. Absolutely. And I think for a lot of families, I mean, you never take away hope, mm -hmm. but it all, and, and all of us go into it with hope that it's going to benefit that child. But I think there is definitely that part, that altruistic part that, that plays into it as well. I guess what I would ask you is sort of kind of along that way, what have you, what have, what have been sort of the biggest sort of challenges, I guess, in the, in the field to kind of move those therapies to the point where, you know, they, you feel like, mm -hmm. you know, the patients can get them. What are kind of the biggest blocks? Oh, so uh, there's lots of challenges. I think there's lots of opportunities. I kind of rephrase things into opportunities. Um, <laughs> That's a good way of putting uh, yeah, it. Yeah, lots of opportunities. So I think things have changed an awful lot um, over the time of history of my career. And, I, and when I started, and, and, and in a while I was developing therapies for rhabdomyosarcoma, and the big clinical trial I did was not involving new agents. It was involving using old agents in a different way in, for, for the treatment of rhabdomyosarcoma, because that's a lot of what we had. We didn't have a lot of really new agents. I mean, you know, a lot of them were cytotoxics, a lot of them were, were classics. I think where we are now, I think there's a couple really big challenges. One is um, actually developing the scientific basis for why a certain drug or a certain pathway or a certain agent or a certain approach is the right approach to take in a particular childhood cancer. I think then the second is how do we then deliver those therapies to children. And that gets into one of, I think, the really big challenges is um, how do you deliver therapies that may have very different side effects? How do we follow that? How do you deliver some of the oral therapies now to smaller children? There's huge issues with that. I think the other big challenge is getting access to a lot of the therapies now. Um, we really need academic, industry, and federal collaborations to be able to bring these forward. And I think there have been real barriers to that over over time. And I think we're starting to break some of those barriers down. Um, I think things have been very siloed um, historically between industry and academia. And I think that has limited what we've been able to do. I think those barriers are changing. I think that bar is moving. I think that has been a barrier. I also think a big challenge um, is that we in pediatric cancer essentially are an orphan disease when it comes to federal funding. So we're not breast cancer. We're not lung cancer. We're not colon cancer. We're studying rare diseases. And so to get funding and to get appropriate funding to drive some of the scientific discovery that's needed is hard because you're really limited by, I think, some real systems issues that are changing. Yeah. But 
I think those are real limitations. It's a challenge to figure out how you can provide value to your partners who have invested, right. your indus industry partners who have right. invested a lot of their resources in developing something right. to show them that there's value right. to them in right. providing value to kids. Right, exactly, because their goal is not necessarily to develop the drug for children. Yeah. Their goal is the next... They're not a charity. Right, exactly. Yeah. The next big hit in one of the yeah. big adult cancers. Right, exactly, yeah. exactly. It's not part of their um, their mission, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So we talked a little bit earlier, and 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 you said that your career development had been uh, a series of serendipitous events, mm -hmm. right? Maybe you can talk Absolutely. to us a little bit about, about serendipity. Serendipity. Uh, so. So I will tell you, I had no grand plan to be a pediatric oncologist. There was no grand plan. I, um, I during residency, uh, was influenced during a rotation where it was sort of that aha moment, sort of, of discovering that I really, really liked critical care medicine and oncology was really cool and research was really cool. So I trained in Canada. At the time in Canada, this was a, a long time ago, <laughs> um, it, they, it, at that time, there were really only three centers in Canada that had a fellowship for training in pediatric oncology. So I had decided by then I, that's what I wanted to do. So it was the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto. There was um, Quebec in Montreal um, that mainly was in French. And then there was the University of British Columbia. Uh, in Vancouver, they only took a fellow every other year. I was the off year when I was applying. So it's essentially left the Hospital for Sick Children as the only training program in Canada for pediatric oncology. So at the time, it was a different landscape. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to look around. I ended up, I had never been to Minnesota in my life. I applied to different places. I, this was pre-match days, okay, so that didn't exist. I go to Minnesota. And I, it was November. I will never forget this. I got off the plane and there was snow. And I'm like, oh my God, it's snowing in November. I come from Toronto. This is 100 miles south of, <laughs> of Minnesota. I'm like, okay. So I, I, and Minnesota at that time had some really phenomenal people who were there, um, giants in the field. And it was one of those things where I'm like, oh, wow, this is like, I'm always like kid in a candy store, wide-eyed, like this is so cool. <laughs> it was a Friday, I was interviewed. We spent the weekend, I flew back. I was rounding on the Monday on my pediatric service, and I got a call from um, Joe Neglia, who's, who was at the time the fellowship director, and said, so do you want a job in Minnesota? Do you want a fellowship job? I mean, that was how this happened. Wow. So I was like, Oh, okay. And because I was like, okay, there were other things, but I was like, to be honest, it was the most Canadian city I could have thought of to move to in the United most States Canadian at the time. Right. So, so we went to Minnesota, but to be honest, it was an incredible opportunity. I, um, so that was one serendipitous thing. The other serendipitous thing is I, from my research point, my research stuff, I never had a grand design to be a, a sarcoma person, but I knew into my fellowship that I, d I wanted to do oncology. So I initially started in a lab that was actually a fairly molecularly based lab of a non-oncologist, a PhD, and realized that, and it was actually, they may, were mainly focused on breast cancer. 
and we were looking at methotrexate derivatives and stuff for breast cancer. Long and short of it, I thought, you know, this isn't going to translate real well <coughs> into what I want to do. And um, at the time, Norma Ramsey, John Wagner, and Bruce Blazer, I was a second year, I had just started, I was just an early second year fellow, pulled me in the office and said, do you have any interest in moving forward with, you know, similar work, but in doing something more focused on a pediatric tumor? So then I, I went into Bruce Blazer's lab. So if you know Bruce Blazer, he's a bone marrow transplant guy, a graft-versus-host guy, leukemia guy. Okay, I'm not. I had no intention <laughs> of being a leukemia transplant, graft-versus-host person. And Bruce basically said... Okay, you want to develop a mouse model? Okay, let's figure out a sarcoma model. Go nuts. He let me use his lab. He's, yeah. I, I worked on a mouse model of rhabdomyosarcoma. I, was, I had to find the cell lines. I had to do all that. Wow. But he gave me all the tools and opened the door and said, if you want to do mouse models, go for it. The other serendipitous thing that happened is um, at the time, the, uh, this was before COG. Um, there was a group called the IRSG and CCG and POG and, and NITWITS. So IRSG, Intergroup Rhabdomyosarcoma Study Group, the head of that was Bill Christ, who was based at Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Bruce called up Bill and said, do you want to take a road trip up to Minnesota? I have a, f a f at that time I was like a, fourth year fellow, because I did a fourth year, I was a fourth, fourth year fellow, I want her to present, you know, her stuff on Rapto to you. So, okay, fine. I didn't know what IRSG was. I hardly knew what the heck I was doing. So I presented the stuff I was doing in the lab, which was looking at all sorts of immune manipulation for Rapto. And Bill's like, this is really cool. You should come and present to the IRSG group. So I go and present to IRSG. Wow. Next thing I know, within a year and a half, I was asked to do the next upfront high-risk trial for rhabdomyosarcoma. So it, it was just because, to be honest. Good timing. Good timing yeah. and an amazing mentor. So, Robin, to your point is you have mentors who open doors. He was an amazing mentor. Bruce didn't have a model of rhabdomyosarcoma. I, but I was allowed to be able to do something in an environment that was really supportive. So a lot of serendipity. I also, the way I got into the developmental therapeutics piece is um, actually uh, John Parentesis, who was at the University of Minnesota at the time, was the phase one PI. I did clinic with John as a fellow all the way through and as a junior faculty stayed kind of uh, in the same time slot. And John had a draft of a phase one study that was very preliminary for 17 AAG. And he said, well, do you want to, do you want to work on that? And literally gave me that 17 AAG, which was my very first phase one trial. One of the things I think, and I, I mean, I'm not, I'm still being mentored, but <laughs> so but am I. I don't know, <laughs> if, you know what you tell your men, your mentees is that though, to be open to possibilities because I yeah. think you were very, you seemed very, you know, kind of like, well, that sounds cool. I could probably apply that in what I want to do so that people don't get very, you know, narrow minded and thinking, well, that doesn't really relate to what I want to do. Why would I do that? Right. Not realizing that this thing could lead to the next step, which might lead to the next step. Right. 
even though it doesn't seem exactly targeted to your focus. I think that's an important thing to tell mm-hmm. mentees. Yeah. So, Robert, I think that's a really important point is I think mentors could and should open doors and help formulate an environment for success. But I don't, I think a mentee has to help define what's needed and what direction to go in to be truly successful. You need guidance, but I think you need opportunities. But I I think it is really important to not get so focused on an idea or a path because doors are going to open in directions that you don't expect them to at all. Um, I mean, I thought I was in this molecular lab really working on, you know, these, you know, folate derivatives. I mean, I, 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 yeah. I was where I was. Um, had I stayed there, I would not be doing what I'm doing today. There's no way. No way. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think it is really important. I think you have to recognize an open door. I think you have to not go through every single one of them, but you have to be able to say, oh, maybe, maybe, and explore it enough to decide, yes, this is a good fit, or no, this is maybe something I should not do. But also have a, around you relationships where you can have those conversations to help make the decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that's also, you don't make decisions in a vacuum. And, and it's being open to having some of those out-of-the-box conversations sometimes. If I could change gears just a little bit. I know, you know, most people know you as the early phase person, right? <laughs> yeah. As someone who helps... Uh, who helps us as we get our new therapies, doing the first in man and, and figuring out, going through these proof of principle studies that help us decide what works and what doesn't. And I think we've seen a, kind of an evolution in the environment that we find ourselves in. I think we went from a place where we understood very little about our cancers, but also had very few options that we could try. And, and we did lots of, we did great work in the past figuring out which combinations and what doses and what kinds of things that worked for different kinds of cancers and who needed how much. And we're kind of in an era now where we understand these diseases better than ever, maybe to the point that we realize how poorly we understand them. <laughs> but we also have just a proliferation of therapeutic options that uh, I don't think anyone for almost everything that we study has a really good idea about how we leverage those for treatment. So can you give us some examples of what you've seen that's that's working or has worked and where you think there's opportunities for the future? Wow, big question. So I do think your observation is very correct. Is I, I look back, you know, 15 years when the sort of phase one consortium was formed. You look at all of the trials that were done at that time. They are all cytotoxics. And if you even you go back in history of pediatric oncology, everything is a classic cytotoxic. We just combined them differently. We did different schedules. We did different titrations of doses. But everything had sort of a set pattern. You had a set set of toxicities because they were all cytotoxics. We now over the last 15 years or so, have drugs that work much more mechanistically or much more targeted because I think they have been developed along pathways and we've un- we're learning more about the cancers. And I think one of the challenges we have, but I think is also an opportunity, is where that development has worked well is when you have the ability 
to identify the target, so marrying a bioassay with a drug that actually is truly a targeted agent. So I think a lot of the agents we think are targeted agents, I think we're also learning are dirty agents. They target a whole lot of other things or they have a whole other, or they, they create a whole other set of mechanisms. And I'll say escape mechanisms. So even if you hit the target, so IGFR inhibitors are a great example of that. You hit the target, but then you get all sorts of downstream escape mechanisms that it may be that you need to hit that target, but we may need to have lots of different combinations to actually make that hitting of that target successful. Well, and I don't think we know that. Upstream redundancies that we didn't appreciate. Right, yeah. exactly, exactly. That's the opposite direction, yeah. exactly. Redundancies. Um, so I do think, and I'm, I'm going to use this example um, in my talk, is that ALK is probably our quintessential example right now of where it's worked really well. We knew the target, but when we get down to it, <laughs> crizotinib is probably, I mean, this is a drug we're moving forward in patients with neuroblastoma because it targets ALK. It probably is working for a very small number of patients with neuroblastoma because there's a very small number of patients that actually have the mutations that are affected mm-hmm. by crizotinib. We're still trying to figure out how to combine it with chemotherapy. Right. We also, though, have successfully used it in um, LCL, in anaplastic large cell lymphoma. We've used it in combination with chemotherapy, but it has tremendous single agent activity in ALCL. And how, and how do you integrate that? Then the second question is, what do you take away? So if you can integrate something like crizotinib into the therapy backbone for ALCL, do you still then need all that other cytotoxic chemotherapy? I don't think we have a clue how to start asking those questions. So I think we've done it well. In and an, you almost have to do that very slowly and carefully. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> With a very small number of With patients. With a very small number of patients. Because can you imagine if you're the parent of that child? Because yeah. you can offer them almost uh, like a really, really high, high chance we're going to cure your kid if we use this package deal. I'm not going to let you pull anything away. Yeah. You're going to have to really convince me. And But it comes so with all these side effects. It comes with all these side effects. And we know what those cytotoxic side effects are. We know what those side effects are. So I think you can use something like targeting ALK as an example of where we've leveraged the preclinical data. We've, we have an assay that we can actually identify the, the abnormalities in ALK. And they're different in different tumors. But we actually have assays that can do that. We have figured out how to use it as a single agent. I think we're still figuring out how to use it in combination. I don't think we know that yet. But now, the next question is, there are now all sorts of other inhibitors of ALK. How do we then study those? How do we then prioritize those? Which populations do we put them in? Are we then even sub-selecting out even smaller populations that some will get, you know, this ALK inhibitor, some will get that one, some will get that one. And how do we, at the same time, develop the bioassays to support mm-hmm. that? Well, as you make so, that small population even smaller, how do you yes, do studies, studies that can actually prove what's working and what's not? Correct. Yeah. Correct. It puts our whole paradigm on its end. And it, it potentially takes the number of studies we can do in children 
to smaller and smaller questions. Mm-hmm. You know, it is, we may not be asking these big, huge questions. We're, we're starting to say, do we ask smaller questions? Mm-hmm. Are we looking at really sort of a small, randomized, phase two type question? But that still can be mm-hmm. many, many patients that can take a long period of time when you start to get mm-hmm. down to very rare populations. Yeah. And then there's going to be the added challenge now of all the immunotherapies that... Right. Who knows how that's going to pan out. Right. <laughs> you right. Know, I mean, CAR-T right. therapy sounds fantastic, but the, I mean, nobody really knows how to fit that into the whole mix of everything no. else. No. So. No. Agreed. <laughs> when do you fit? When do yeah. you use it? How do you how use do you- it? <laughs> How do you select How do you people know who for will it? Respond. Yeah. Right. How do you select people for it? You know, what are the the long term complications of some of those Nobody therapies? Knows. I think is really a big question out there. How do you make those types of therapies available generally? Because a lot of those serve more cellular, complex therapeutic approaches are not necessarily easily accessible at all places, unlike a, a drug that you can pretty much yeah. give just about anywhere. Well, and we still don't even know, and, and beyond that, even going back to the molecular therapies, we can pretty easily now identify mutations in a lot of cancers, many of which have agents that we can target, but we really don't even know whether targeting those mutations makes a difference. We have how do we no study clue. that on? We have no yeah. clue. I think we're going to have to, there's no going to need to be a little bit of a renaissance about how we go about yeah, studying exactly. these things. Exactly. And we're working through that right now, aren't right. we? And a, a lot of pediatric cancers don't are not necessarily driven by mutations. Mm-hmm. They may be driven by fusions or mm-hmm. other types of genetic alterations within the cell yeah. that may be the, the actual drivers, it may not be the, a mutation that you pick up. And I think that is much more the case in pediatric cancers than it is in adult cancers. So given all this, what excites you about the future? Oh, do you know, it, there's so many possibilities. And I think... We're, we and 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 for those of you who will be at the talk, I, one of my last slides is sort of the dawning of a new era. I mean, I really think that's where we are. We have a landscape in front of us that I think is more rich in possibilities than it's ever been. And I think our real challenge is how do we prioritize those and how do we actually make smart decisions about where we are investing our most precious resources, which are our patients, yeah. and using the ability to learn from our patients, tumor samples, treatments, experience, etc., to be able to best inform which therapies to bring forward. Because we, we're going to have to be really smart in the lab and in preclinical work to really leverage those resources. I also think it's a really exciting time from getting away from sort of the classic cytotoxic you know, napalm explosion type of chemotherapy to something that really hopefully has the potential to cure the cancer, but also improve quality of life. So I think a real exciting thing for me as I, as especially I'm now seeing patients on some of these newer therapies, their quality of life is amazing. Uh Yet, in comparison. Compared to In this. comparison. Yeah. yeah. In yeah. comparison to a lot of the therapies that we were developing 
and bringing forward a decade ago. Mm-hmm. Now, does that translate into different long-term effects? Does that translate into ultimately cures? I don't know. But to me, it's really exciting to think about the possibilities that we may be moving into an era of cancer therapies where we're managing it almost like you do uh, diabetes or asthma or you you have a regimen, but people don't necessarily know that you're going through this horrible yeah. experience. No, it's um, kind of true. It's become now more of a chronic disease right. than it has been. Some, some, know, of some of them. Some of them. Well, some of them. There's some a number of, of cancers where we have some a of them long way to There's go. There's many we have a long way to go. Yeah. Long way to go. It's kind of cool as we kind of move towards more personalized medicine. I sort of see this, I don't know, I envision these clinical trials where there's like, you know, you know, arms A through F and, you know, each person has the same backbone, but you're on crisotinib, yep. you're on this. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And those trials are, those trials are, are starting so, to be done. They, yeah. they definitely so, are being done. Um, yeah. And I think, I do think that's sort of the era we're heading mm-hmm. into. And I think some of the real opportunities for us is mm-hmm. in pediatrics, how do we ask some of those really hard questions of, of substitution or de-escalation of therapy? How do we study quality of life? How do we, how do we really look at some of the complexities of the side effects of some of these new drugs that we just really, I think, are just starting to understand? Yeah. Especially the long term right. in our developing children and yeah. most of these yeah. drugs haven't really been tested there. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Weigel. Looks like that's it for this week. And thank you, Robin. No problem. Happy to be here. We are happy to read your emails during future podcasts and discuss your comments and questions if you'll send us a note at tweepo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow us on Twitter at Tweepo Podcast, and you can also sign up for automatic notification when we post new episodes by registering using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website. Thank you to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. That team includes Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Cindy Campbell, the director of communications. Also, thank you to Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.